This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, public radio journalist Celeste Headley is joined in conversation by CIIS's Zara Zimbardo to discuss how to have meaningful conversations and why they matter. This event was recorded on February 22, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. It's an honor to meet you and to get to have the opportunity to interview a renowned interviewer. And it definitely feels uh, very meta to have a converse, be in conversation with you about conversation. Right. <laughs> um, so I'd like to start by asking, as a professional interviewer, question crafter, conversation cultivator, um, what was what lit your fire to create this TED Talk and also to create this wonderful book that pulls together so much research and lived insight on the value of conversational competence, how it's eroding, and how we can take tangible steps to improve it? Well, I... Um I didn't study journalism in college. I have both of my degrees are in uh, opera. I'm a professional opera singer. So I had to do all of my journalism training after I was always already a working journalist. So um, when I went to go to figure out how to become a better interviewer, I started reading um, all of these books and all of this research on conversation, how to be a better conversationalist. And I have the... the um, the benefit of working in a conversational laboratory, right? I mean, I'm literally interviewing dozens of people every week from all different walks of life. And so when I would take all of this advice that they gave me on doing better conversation, it was all crap. I mean, none of it worked. Like literally when I tried it out, I, I had to wonder if they even had, the people who wrote these books, did they even follow their own advice? Like it literally did not work. Things like not look, to show you're paying attention. Show people and look people in the eye while you're talking to them, which ends up being really awkward in practice. <laughs> um, or nod your head and say, uh-huh, mm, uh-huh. I mean, basically, for generation after generation, what the experts have been training us to do is how to pretend that we're paying attention. Right. Instead of just learning to pay attention, right? Which is really authentic, actually. Um, so I, I had to start from scratch. Right, I had to sort of throw out all of those books, and um, I didn't throw them away. I donated them to the library, um, but uh, start from scratch. And in, in in a number of ways, I had to reach into different fields of research that were unexpected, because we don't actually have a lot of research on conversation. We have a lot of research on the pieces in isolation, like we have researched human beings talking, and we've researched human beings listening, but there's not a whole lot on human beings talking and listening to each other. So you have to sort of find these nuggets in some cases in fields of study that are just unexpected, like English as a second language and, you know, places where you may not think you'd find it and then sort of discover how to make it better. And then I could take it back into my conversational laboratory and see if it worked. Yeah. And was there um, uh, a particular pressing impetus to want to really marshal all these resources to share it with the world at this time, whether at this time in your life or at this time in our country? Well, you know, the, the, the prompt for the TEDx talk was um, tell us what bugs you in the world and then tell us how to fix it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, having covered politics now for going on 19 almost 20 years um we see really clearly how political discussions are breaking down in dc right we have no problem 
saying that politicians don't talk to each other. But we also have no problem um, feeling virtuous about not talking to people who disagree with us, right? We stand on principle and you see somebody with a Trump hat or a Bernie Sanders shirt and you feel like you already know what all their opinions are and you don't want to hear them and you feel actually good about not engaging that person or whatever it may be. And it occurred to me that um, we needed to stop thinking it was it was somehow a, a, a good quality to not engage half of the population. I mean, I don't know how we got to the point where that became sort of a point of pride, mm. um, but it needed to end um, because it was the exact same dysfunction that we had no problem criticizing on Capitol Hill. You know, it wasn't that long ago that politicians would argue with each other in Congress and then go home and bowl together or go to each other's kids' birthday parties and hang out and have dinner together or whatever it may be. That does not happen in Washington anymore. Does not happen. But it also doesn't happen in our own homes. Like, I remember my grandparents, they used to have, you know, barbecues or whatever, um, in the summertime, and they would v invite the whole neighborhood. And there was like, I remember one guy who was always spouting conspiracy theories, and they're like, eh, that's Larry. You know, nobody agreed with him, but they didn't stop inviting him, right? I mean, that this this dysfunction is not just isolated to Washington. It's all of us. We're constantly trying to unfriend people in real life. Yeah, so it's upsetting. And this is something that you've been witnessing over the last couple of decades as deteriorating in terms of, it sounds like, on a number of fronts, in yeah. terms of our capacity to pay sustained attention for longer than eight seconds <laughs> to each other, but also um, the ease and speed with which we write others off and that right. there's deal breakers of who we might not talk with or not seeing the value in reaching across different ideological divides. What do you attribute some of these trends to? This is oh, my hey. cell phone. Um, I, I don't attribute all of it to the smartphone. Mm -hmm. It is not all the smartphone's fault. Because the smartphone is literally not making you send a text when you could use the phone. You're choosing to do that, right? It is a phone at heart. Like that's, it's literally created to be a phone. But we don't use it as a phone. The average American at this point, adult, um, spends, and this research is actually a few years old, so it's probably worse by now, uh, spends about 30 minutes texting every day and six minutes on the phone. Um, and some companies uh, like Coca-Cola, Cisco, J.P. Morgan, uh, use the phone so little in their business places that they've eliminated voicemail completely. They don't even pay for it anymore. Like that's how little we use the phone. Um, and Which that's, used to be a single function device. <laughs> right. And I am not a like, back in the good old days <laughs> when you wrote letters on parchment. Like, not at all. Like, I use my phone for everything. And I've got a Fitbit. And I have a smart uh, Surface tablet that I love, like, viscerally. Um, but the problem is, is that this technology that has the power to do all kinds of things that human beings are terrible at right? It can do high-functioning math. It can keep track of your bank balance. It can do all kinds of things, keep track of your schedule that our brains are not very good at. But what we keep trying to do and keep inventing new platforms for is to replace the one thing human beings are better at than any other species. And that is communication. That's the part I don't understand. Um, because it's stupid. It's a stupid idea. We don't need yet another app that replaces the thing that we do at such sophisticated level we can't even understand. Scientists at this point can't even understand all that happens in a human brain and body when our ears listen to a human voice. We can't even track it. Mm. And yet we want to replace it. Okay, so... I, I, just to go further into your question, there's this great research coming out of Princeton right now on a, a phenomenon called neural coupling. And basically they, they hook all these 
people up to an fMRI, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine. And they bring a person in and they have them tell a story, uh, a personal story from their own life. Like in one case, she told a story about a, her disastrous prom. And then they bring in a whole bunch of other people and have them listen. And at the same time, they're hooked up to fMRIs. And here's what happens. When people are listening in an engaged way, the brain waves of the listeners match in perfect sync the brain waves of the speaker. Perfect sync. In some cases, the match is so close that the brain waves of the listener anticipate changes in the speaker's brain by a fraction of a second. It's mind meld, right? I mean, that's, that's just incredible. We don't know why it works. We don't know how it works. But I know we're trying to replace it with emojis. And there's, there's no replacement for that. That is fascinating. Right? Right. And in terms of all the neurological or you say neural coupling, neural, neural coupling, coupling that may be yeah. happening as well as all of the nonverbal cues and right. body language and all that's getting conveyed in tone and pausing and silences, exactly. um, which doesn't come across in a text. <laughs> it does not. And we, they've even shown that um, your closest friends and family members are no more accurate at detecting sarcasm in your emails than a complete stranger off the street. So when I tell my friends this, they go, oh, I totally believe that's true, but not me. My friends really know me. And I was like, that's not how math works. <laughs> that's not, mm-mm. So we have, this, we have this capacity to see that technology impacts other people in a negative way, but we don't accept that it's impacting us, right? We don't think we're addicted to Facebook. Right. We don't think... We check our Twitter feed too much, but people do. People. Um, so part of what I have to do is sort of unplug people from the matrix, right? Like I, it's part of my mission is to sort of have people sort of shake themselves awake and realize how much this device really has become part of their neurological processes because it's it, the impact is huge right and things keep changing so quickly in terms of new devices and then shifting information and communication technologies that and then it becomes the new norm and right. then it has new social norms like what used to be rude because you're not paying attention then becomes normalized as well as just the different uh, mediums that shape how we communicate to others and can shape then how we think or even how we relate to ourselves. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Sherry Turkle, who you reference in her book, uh -huh. in your book, um, and her book Alone Together. Yeah, MIT professor, yeah. Yeah, why we, how we expect more from technology and less from each other. Right. Um, and how both uh, you and she talk about some of these different aspects of what might be happening to us as we're internalizing our digital devices in terms of a sense of control of communication. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't want to be in a meandering, unknown, uncharted conversational right. waters. I, I don't want to talk about that. I don't yeah. want to hear about that. Yeah, I want to be close so, enough, but far away enough exactly. where I can control things. Um, as well as shifting our attention spans or even our capacity to uh, listen to ourselves yeah. <laughs> and oh, to absolutely. focus on someone else. Um, and can you speak to that in terms of some of the changes or how you said that you get people to unplug? Well, to I mean, be first of all, we have way? to kind of stop and take stock of how quickly these changes have occurred, right? Because in the early 2000s, only a small percentage of American adults actually owned a smartphone. And here we are in 2018. At this point, the United Nations says more people have access to a cell phone than have access to a working toilet. So the rapidity with which this technology has been adopted by the world is just unheard of. Um, and you also have to understand that the research into effects, those kind of clinical, clinical studies take years, 
Research is slow. So we're only now beginning to get some of the results back on the effects the smartphone has on our brains. And it's pretty alarming. Um, And it's not just the smartphone. For example, a a lot of people tend to keep an email client open on their desktop at all times, right? Like you're working in Word, but in the background, Outlook is open or whatever your email is. Well, it turns out that's deeply distracting to your brain, right? Your brain, part of your brain capacity at all times is thinking about that email client. client. And it's, it's, in it's in many ways in sort of fight or flight mode, like it's it's ready to respond. And the average person responds to a notification, at least goes to look at it within six seconds of it arriving. That's how aware your brain is. Sadly, that means it also drops your IQ because part of your brain is occupied in thinking about that email. It's the exact same thing. This cell phone being visible is distracting not just my brain, but all of your brains too. <laughs> they did a study in, in fact, I'm going to put away. Um, they <laughs> did a study in the UK in which they would brought in all these people and they had them sit down and have conversations with perfect strangers. And in half of those situations, they would come in and they would just set this, a, a cell phone down on the table. It belonged to neither person. It never made any noise. But those people who had a cell phone present were something like 62% more likely to say the other person was unempathetic, untrustworthy, and unlikable. Fascinating. Right? So how many times do you go to lunch and you just set your phone down on the table and you think you're good, good because you don't look at it? Not realizing, not only is it distracting your brain, but it's making the other person not like you. So, I mean, that's the first thing to me is like, don't put it down, put it away. And here's a revolutionary thought. Every once in a while, leave it at home. It hasn't been that long since we didn't have smartphones, right? You can survive without it. Every person in this room grew up without a smartphone. None of you are like 10 years old. So, like, you're capable of surviving without your smartphone. I sometimes need to remind myself about that because technology can create such amnesia where I'm like, back in the day when there was, like, a cassette for, you know, leaving the answering machine. For a second, I was like, what what did we call that uh, artifact? But, you know, and it was, like, a big deal. Like, how did we find each other in the city when you can't say I'm a few blocks away and I'm running late? Or did we used to be a lot more talented at staring out windows or waiting or just being comfortable with waiting and pausing and not knowing and being able to find our way around. Um, what you're, oh. Yeah, and it's funny that you bring that up mm-hmm. because that's one thing that sadly has been eliminated, which is boredom. Mm-hmm. We've eliminated boredom. And one thing that we know about human intelligence is that we actually need boredom. Um, our brains need time to just wander because that's the time when they go into uncharted territories. That's when we're most likely to innovate and come up with creative problems because our brain is undirected, right? It's sort of like forcing your brain to do radiant thinking. But that's also when you're going to be at your most creative. So what does it mean when our one of the best tools we have for creative problem solving is gone, We have kids growing up in an era when they're never bored. I mean, think of how big a deal that is, right? What a cliche it is to see the kid in the movie going, um, I'm bored. Well, then go outside, right? I mean, that's such a cliche because we've heard it generation after generation after generation and not anymore. We're not bored anymore. It's a bad thing. Like I, I took the social media, I deleted the apps off my phone. Um, and even for me, who's sort of an evangelist about this, it was hard, but like, and I also installed a thing on my tablet that only allows me to check those for a certain amount of, of minutes per day. And then I can't even look at the sites anymore. It would just blocks it. And it says, shouldn't she be working? Um, with a little smiley face or cute animal. Yeah. There's like a little, yeah. (laughs) What are you doing with your life? Um, and uh, the like the first weekend that I installed it, like I remember si- I was sitting on the couch and I'm like, 
I'm bored. Like, I literally am sitting here with nothing to do. I got to go occupy myself. And it was fabulous. <laughs> it was fabulous, right? Yeah, I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> For so, sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, there's so much going on in terms of communication and also with our capacity for solitude and you keep and bringing to up the attention ourselves. span and you're saying mm-hmm. eight seconds and i want to make mm-hmm. sure i i clarify that that um microsoft does some of the best research into our shrinking attention spans and what they've found is on the internet at least our attention spans before we click to a link or look at something else is about eight seconds. Um, And that's one second shorter than the attention span of a goldfish. In conversation, our attention span is maybe 30 to 60 seconds at the most. Um, And most people talk for more than 30 or 60 seconds at a time, which means you're probably talking too long. (laughs) It seems that one of the other implications in terms of how we're getting rewired, um, which also brings up, you know, some of these different mindfulness practices that you're talking in your book is around multitasking and the illusion that we have that are, we're having undivided attention while we have Mm -hmm. a bazillion (laughs) tabs open on our browser or just tabs open in our brain. Right. Like that. And, um, tabs open in your brain. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and feeling like, oh, we're being really productive and feeling really stimulated um, and getting a lot done and multitasking when it sounds like the research is showing quite the opposite, that we're not actually oh, being present yeah. with any any of this and that that's also um, uh, making certain skills atrophy. <laughs> yeah, and that's a really great way to put it. In fact, they say it it causes your cognitive abilities to atrophy. So here's the vicious cycle of multitasking. I mean, I think most people are aware we can't multitask. I hope people realize that. The human brain cannot multitask. Like maybe 4% of human brains at any one time in history are adept enough at task switching that they can do that in any kind of functional way. Everybody else can't multitask. Um, which means your brain really struggles if you're trying to make it switch back and forth from one task to another, which is basically what we think of as multitasking. It's not. And the problem is, is that the attempt to multitask pumps dopamine into your brain. So you feel great. You feel this rush and you also feel very productive, which is a delusion because you're less productive. In fact, the quality of both tasks goes down by somewhere around 25% on average. Your IQ drops by 10 points while you're trying to do this because your brain is struggling, right? Um, So you get this dopamine rush, which of course means that at the end of the day, you're going to have a dopamine crash. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be more fatigued and exhausted at the end of the day than if you had just done one thing at a time. But you also get addicted to that dopamine rush, right? So you wanna feel it again and again and again. So you start multitasking more things, right? You're doing a billion things and talking on the phone while you're cooking dinner, or you're listening to a conference call. How many people actually sit there and do nothing else but listen to a conference call when they're on a conference call? No one does that. Um, I was just giving a speech for Oracle, the cloud, platform and their sales their marketing team actually forces everyone to be on video at this point because that's the only way they can make sure everyone is not mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting bob uh-huh <laughs> and it's it's especially bad the effects are especially bad when you're you're trying to do two tasks that require the same part of the brain right so if you're answering email while you're a conference call those are both the same part of the brain and your brain can't do both of them So you're basically forcing it to flush one of them and only pay attention to the other, but only pay attention to it in a really diminished capacity. And that's what you referred to later is the other sort of newest research on this, which is that over time, um, while you try to multitask, it actually atrophies your cognitive abilities in a permanent way. So it's like... 
Mm. One thing at a time. Yeah. Put the other stuff down. And it's hard. It's really hard. And so in terms of the power of single tasking, <laughs> um, through woven throughout your book, you keep returning in different ways and from different angles to um, qualities or capacities that we can deliberately cultivate. They're like muscles that we can actually right. build and get stronger at. Um, in terms of, it seems like, there's so many specific, fabulous uh, pieces of advice and insight in the book, and that many of them relate to being present in different right. ways, and being present with listening and all of the focus and um, attention that that takes, and with what we've just been talking about in terms of our political climate, which is so extremely polarized, and with our technological social media climate, both of those things are really taking tolls on our attention and on this yeah. attention economy. And so in terms of ways to strengthen these capacities, um, what are some of the main uh, lessons that you've learned in terms of how we can do that, whether that's in a more professional setting or in a more personal setting? Um, well, there's a few things. I mean, the, literally in terms of, of remaining mindful in a conversation, and being mindful in a conversation, being present in a conversation means being able to listen to someone. And, and that's hard because the average person talks about 150 words per minute and the average person listens at about 400 to 450 words per minute, which basically means that there's a lot of thoughts running through your head way faster than I'm talking right now. Like, like your head is just like zoom, 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 all this stuff going through. Thanks for that visual. Sure. <laughs> um, and so at a certain point, in order for you to continue to listen to me, you have to let those thoughts come in and go, right? You can't hold on to them. Because otherwise, it's like when somebody's talking and then suddenly you remember a story that you think is really funny. And so you have to stop listening to them so you can just keep holding on to remember to say this story. And you're just waiting for them to stop talking so you can tell the story, right? Um, so, which is what we do all the time. Right. I mean, that's why Stephen Covey says that we're always listening, not with the intent to understand, but with the intent to reply. Right. Um, and the only way that we know that I could find of to train your brain to do that, to let stuff go is through mindfulness meditation, because literally what that's training you to do is not to resist thoughts, not to um, judge whether it's good or bad that you're having the thoughts, but just to say there's a thought and then go right back to watching your breath or not getting caught up in it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, another part of that that gets forgotten all the time is that if you are incapable of doing that, if you are literally in a, in a place where you are overwhelmed in a bad mood, too tired, whatever it may be, it's okay to excuse yourself rather than waste their time by not really listening to them. If you're unable to be present, I think the chapter's called like be present or be gone or something like that. And, and that's why I tell people to do It's okay to say, I can't focus on you and you deserve my focus. So put a pin in it and I'll get back to you. Mm -hmm. Right. So that we can, when we're showing up, we're fully showing up. Right. Instead of pretending and then perpetuating right, this kind of like, right. Uh-huh. Oh. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Right, which could also get replaced by a social bull robot that's like, mm, tell me yeah. more. You don't say. Yeah, we all become Amazon Alexa. <laughs> that's very interesting, Zara. Please tell that story again. Thank you. How was your day? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually not what sure if that's how Alexa talks. It's just going to be us Im imitating AIs. That's the whole rest of the. <laughs> right, which is its whole other right. Right, exploding terrain that we're increasingly engaging with. Um, and so in terms of uh, what you were just talking about, um, of cultivating this quality, you know, there's so many different types of listening and this like listening to understand, not listening to persuade, not listening to reply, not listening to, in order to be able to poke holes in argument and tell the other person right. how they're totally wrong. Um, that that can be useful and generative in so many ways. And um, 
when we're having difficult conversations around tension-filled topics with people who we might have really differing or even clashing views on certain issues about. Um, could you speak to that a bit in terms of with your work as an interviewer, times when you might be interviewing someone who... Uh, Sure. I mean, we're in San Francisco, so I'm Mm going to assume that a difficult conversation would be with a Trump supporter, right? Um, I feel like that's a relatively fair assumption to make. Um, So one of the biggest problems, one of the things that prevents us from listening is because um, we don't think we have anything to learn from that other person, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Number one, we make the assumption that we know everything that they think, Right which is a wrong assumption. Based on just a couple right. pieces of information. They'll say, mm-hmm. you know, they're pro-life or they'll say they're Second Amendment supporters, right? And then we figure, we we feel like we know them, which we know is crap, right? I mean, there's some opinions I'm sure I have that you guys don't agree with me on, but that doesn't mean you know the ins and outs of my opinion. Like, you don't know who I am based on that. Um, And the same is true for the other side. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that both liberals and conservatives are equally prone to confirmation bias. And this is another one of those things where we like to think the other side is. Um, But research shows it's nonpartisan. Human beings are the only species that suffers from confirmation bias. Um, Confirmation bias, just quickly, is when you have a strong opinion, somebody shows you evidence that refutes that opinion pretty you know comprehensively and it makes you believe it stronger human beings are the only ones that suffer from that um and it's nonpartisan. we all suffer from it so but because we believe only the other side does we are really dismissive of whatever their opinions may be or whatever their experiences. So let's say that somebody gives you an opinion and they back it up with bogus information, right? And you think, where'd you hear that? Fox News, right? Instead of asking the questions of, okay, so I'm interested in why you believe that, right? So what, where, where did you learn? Not to prove them wrong, but have some curiosity about how they came about this. If they do believe something wrong, aren't you at all curious about why they want to believe it? Right? Or, or do you truly believe that there's another person on this planet from whom, whom you can learn nothing? Do you really think this person got to whatever age they are in life not learning anything you didn't learn? There's nothing they're an expert in that you don't already know about because come on they can teach you something um and i say this all the time to people there's this uh, musician a jazz pianist named daryl davis and there's a great pbs documentary about him called accidental courtesy and he a african-american guy and he has made it his hobby in his off time to convince people to leave the kkk and he's so successful at it that he basically dismantled the KKK operation in the state of Maryland. And when people ask him, how do you, what do you say to them? How do you convince them? How can you be so persuasive? He says, I don't say anything to them. I listen to them. And he said something really important. He said, by actively listening to them, I am passively teaching them about myself. And sometimes people just want to be heard. Um, and that's something you can do. And I don't care how vile you think their opinions are. It doesn't matter how bad they are. You can still listen to them and you can learn from them. And the act of listening is a bond between human beings. It can create an intimacy, um, that changes hearts. Mm -hmm. Right. And something I appreciate that you said in your book is that, um, at times, the goal is not right to change minds, but to open them. Right. That there can be some unexpected connection, that yeah. you can learn something, that you can be in a place of genuine curiosity, not uh, pretending to be curious, which might be one of those conversational skills that yeah. you categorized as crap earlier. Yes. <laughs> where you're displaying curiosity. But actually, um, which seems also related to a practice of humility, to in yeah. terms of that, we don't know what we don't know. 
And to be able to say at times, like, we don't know, or to question where we get our knowledge from. <laughs> right, exactly. Or that we, there's so much that we don't know about someone else, which seems like uh, that can intervene into some of the, um, when you speak about unconscious bias or stereotyping or where it's taking a little bit of information about someone and saying, like, oh, I know your whole worldview, I know you already, which is a monologue yeah, with myself, exactly. not actually a dialogue with someone else. That's exactly right. And it's also, I mean, um, we have now, in, you know, by some implicit bias tests, partisan pol- political partisanship is a stronger indicator of, of implicit bias than race um, in some cases. Not all cases. We're pretty racist. Um, but, you know, in the 19, during the days of Watergate, um, something like 8% of Americans said they'd be unhappy if a, a, a person from the other political party married into their family. Um, by like the 1980s, I think it was, I think it was up to maybe 40%. And at this point in, in our lives, it's up like 80 to 90%. Would be unhappy if someone from the opposing political party married into your family. I mean, consider what that means for a moment. Right? I mean, that's Romeo and Juliet, right? right? So that would be a mixed marriage or... Right. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. that would be in the 17th century, a Jew marrying a Catholic, right? That's where we are on politics. Really? I've been covering politics forever, and let me tell you, the politicians are not worth that loyalty. <laughs> They're not worth the loyalty. In terms of having genuine curiosity about someone, sometimes I'll make it a game, right? Like, I'll meet somebody. People here, I, you know, work for NPR and PRI and at parties, and they decide they're going to have political arguments with me. It's just exhausting. Um, (laughs) But I'll turn it into a game, right? You know, they'll come up and start trying to argue with me about guns or whatever it may be. Um, And I'll say, listen. um, I'm at a party. I know. But I, I bet in, in eight questions, I can find something you and I agree on. Give me eight questions and I'll find it. And yeah, I can usually get it in two because like food and dogs <laughs> are really good. I can pretty much find, right, like the great unifiers, dogs and tacos, right? I mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's transcendent. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. So, I mean, this is something you can do. Let's say you feel yourself getting into an argument with someone. And you can say, you know what, hold up. We're about to get into an argument, and I don't want to. So give me five questions, <laughs> and I can find something we agree on. Let's start here. Tacos, right? You got me? Tacos? No tacos. Dogs? Okay, we're there, right? I mean, you In can... In San Francisco, it might be burritos, but yeah. Okay, <laughs> fine. Fair enough. Um, nachos, even, right? So, I mean... You can make human connections and and turn it into a way for you just to reclaim your own humanity. And humanity is not solitary. Our basic humanity is social. Like I was talking about us all having confirmation bias and being, as far as we know, the only species that suffers from it. That can be seen as a weakness, absolutely. But it can also be seen as a strength, because How that, so? well, because it, what it means is that we are dependent on each other, that we rely on each other for our checks and balances. And the reason that's a strength is because human beings are basically a hive mind. We don't, we haven't dominated the planet because we're the strongest or the fastest or the most dangerous. I mean, we lose to a mosquito in a one-on-one often, right? We're not impressive, we're not even the smartest, right? That's probably dolphins and, and whales and maybe octopi. Um, a, a dolphin can project a holographic image of a fish into another dolphin's brain. Yeah. We can't compete with that. But the one thing we do better than any other species so far as we know is communicate and collaborate. And that means throughout history, you're not messing with one human being, you're messing with a bunch of human beings. And we can be very specific in our communication. Doctor, here's where it hurts. Here's the situation in which it hurts. Here's where it ranks on the pain scale, right? I mean, we are 
our communication skills are, to use your word, transcendent. To go back to neural coupling. They are so sophisticated, they're intangible. That's what we do really well. And, and so anything that requires us to rely on each other is a good thing. And here's one of the things, this is one of the things that, you know, again, to go back to the very beginning, one of the things that for me made writing this book so imperative is that research shows by some measure empathy has dropped yeah, 40% over the past 30 years. And most of that has occurred since the year 2000. But that whole thing of us using a hive mind requires empathy. It, it doesn't work without empathy. Empathy means that we're willing to help someone else even if there's nothing in it for ourselves. That's what needs to happen in order for us to help each other as a race, right? You wanna talk about like the basics of humanity Empathy is it, and it's breaking down because we're isolating each other, because we're isolating ourselves. And in that isolation, becoming less practiced at recognizing others' emotions or feeling them. Or caring. Or caring. Mm -hmm. A third of Americans have never even met their neighbors. And yet human beings are so socially dependent that if you are friendly with your neighbors, you'll live longer, you're less likely to get diabetes, you're less likely to have a cardiac arrest, you're less likely to suffer from depression. I mean, we require those little daily interactions and yet we feel okay about it to bury our heads in our cell phones so that we don't make eye contact with the Uber driver because then he might start talking to us. But people who engage in regular small talk with their barista and the person in the elevator you're trying not to look at. Um, those people live longer, have healthier hearts, less prone to depression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That communication is very good for us. And that communication, we are purposely, intentionally cutting out of our lives. Mm. And would you say... Or what have you found in terms of with your personal experience and also research around some of the intergenerational differences around communication, isolating ourselves, capacities for listening and attention? So human beings just aren't good listeners. I mean, that research has been around for a very long time, like the 1940s and 50s. We're just not great listeners. It's something we actually have to look work at in practice, right? If you've ever had a baby, you know human beings are not do not come out of the womb knowing how to listen, right? Um, and I think I hear a lot of complaints from people that they think millennials and the generation after millennials, which people are calling iGen, um, are bad listeners. But the research is the opposite. It's actually people over 50 and 60 that are worse listeners than millennials. They're better listeners. Um, and there's all kinds of theories. We don't know why. I could posit my own. Um, but... The, the one thing we do know is that um, millennials are way more likely to think that texting is actually authentic conversation. Um, and it, it's not, like categorically, provably, it is not. Um, it is not the same as conversation. It's not as effective communication. It's not doing what you want it to do. <laughs> we are our worst version of ourselves in digital communication that is provable and replicable and all of those things. But they are more likely to think that those digital interactions are actually human contact, which is not great. I mean, I feel it, what, it, it, what appears to be the case is that older people are aware um, that digital communication doesn't replace this. Right, that it's like a side dish. Right, mm -hmm. that doesn't stop them from texting, right? But they're aware that it's not the same. Whereas millennials and the generations after are more likely to be like, what are you talking about? I had a great conversation with my friend just today over text. Right. I want to um, shift gears for a moment and ask about... Uh, in a chapter from your book that I believe recently was excerpted and was making some of the rounds on social media, um, where you're talking about that it's important when we're listening to someone else talk about a personal experience to not rush in to equate our experience with them, 
theirs or say like, oh, that reminds me of myself and something that happened to me, which might feel like empathy, um, but can produce uh, the opposite um, dynamic. And uh, one of the things that you named, which really gave me pause when I was reading it, was um, conversational narcissism. Um, could you unpack that a bit? Sure, which is not my term. It's sociologist Charles mm-hmm. Derber who first wrote about that. Um, and so it's a natural process when someone is talking about, um, like, say, I, I started saying, okay, I'll, my father died. He did, but I was nine months old, a very long time ago, right? Say I, I started talking to you about that. It's very natural for you to go, oh, I know what you're going through. My, you know, my mom died last year, blah, 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 blah. That's really natural. And you're right. It For many people, it does feel like they're being empathetic. And you are also right that the effect is actually the, quite the opposite. It is conversational narcissism in, in that literally what we're doing is we're taking the focus, right, off of someone else who's trying to relate their own experience and their own feelings. And they're going, look at me and my experience. I know exactly how you feel. And you don't. You don't know how they feel. Because your similar situation is not the same. The person they lost is not the person you lost. You're a different person. It's a different time. They're in a different situation. It's not the same. Now, your brain does this for a very good reason, right? Your brain literally goes in search of these similar experiences. Let's say that you you told me you were making dinner and you cut your finger, My brain is going to go in search of similar experiences when I cut myself to try to put context to understand how painful that may be, right? It's it's trying to feed me information. The mistake we make is when we then verbalize that. That information is really valuable to me and to no one else, right? Mm -hmm. And what Charles Derber would write about was about the shift response, Right. In other words, when he's talking about conversational narcissism, he's talking about you shifting attention back to yourself instead of a support response, which is a response that continues to support the other person and encourage them to continue talking. And we tend to shift response all the time. And I think one of the examples I use in the book is like someone saying, oh, I need to get new shoes. And I go, oh, me too. I've had these for like five years and they're really worn down. That's a shift response. And sometimes we do it more subtly, right? Sometimes we do it by withholding full attention. So like your friend will say, I need to ask for a raise. And you go, mm. And they'll say, yeah, I'm really, I, I'm going to ask for like maybe 5,000 more. And I'll go, oh, yeah. And then they'll say, you were trying to get a raise too, right? And they go, oh, yes. Um, I, and then you finally reward them right. with your attention. With being more animated and attention right. and present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We all do it. <laughs> it's not, it's all of us. Yeah. Right, which seems another way of turning it more into ultimately a monologue than right. a dialogue and where it's, it's understanding it. It, yeah. it because you know one of the big eye openers was for me was this research that came out of Harvard in 2014 um, and what they found was that talking about yourself what they call self-disclosure activates the exact same pleasure and center in the brain as sex and heroin or, or, or chocolate it's inherently pleasurable to talk about yourself but it deceives us because the pleasurable experience we're having is very often not shared, right? So you can go on a date and come away from that date feeling awesome and be like, oh my God, we totally clicked and then shocked that they never call you again. But that's because your pleasure center was like feeding you orgasmic energy all night and you feel fantastic and they're like, oh my God, will this person never stop talking about themselves? Right? So it's understandable that we do this because it feels great. The people in the study even accepted a a lower salary in order to continue talking about themselves. Right? They offered them more money if they would talk about anything else. And they said, no, um, I'd rather just keep talking about (laughs) me and what I know and what I like. And yeah. So, I mean, that's how strong a pull that is. And it's hard to stop doing that.
Yeah, indeed. Right? <laughs> well, even in just uh, reading your um, writings on that have just been trying to practice a different type of mindfulness of just noticing and observing when there's that impulse to be like, oh, that reminds me of the time when I had this or I can it relate and to just time, right? watch that come up, let it subside and kind of see what shifts to just kind of hold the reins on that impulse um, where it's coming from. Yeah. And it can take on a particular um, potency when it's particularly someone's talking about uh, a very difficult situation or if someone's grieving, you know, as well as with the pressure of wanting like the right thing to say or wanting to maybe not be voyeuristic with someone's pain also and wanting to say like, I too, you know, struggle. Yeah, and it's understandable. Like sometimes you don't know what to say. And so we fill it in with the subject we know more about than anything else. Ourselves, right? I totally get that. Um, It's awkward. You don't know what to say. Um, But instead, you can just ask questions and encourage them. That's what a support response is, is you can even say, oh, wow, I don't even know what to say. I mean, there's nothing I can say that can help you. What, how can I help you? What are you going through? What do you need from me, right? I mean, you can continue to give support responses instead of just constantly falling back on, I just imagine the little, the little woman in my head right. <laughs> all the time, you know, and I, it, you can cut that out. Curious to ask, after being in these fields of prof- having conversations <laughs> professionally and interviewing people, what feels like your edge now in terms of what you're practicing? Um, I think for me, the, uh, my edge is that I'm trying to uh, be more analog in the midst of my technology. Like I'm trying to be really intentional about how I use technology at this point. Um, because I use it a lot, but I'm trying to use it smartly. And, and I'm trying to, what I've been trying to do is really sort of ask myself some hard questions about what what it is I really want. Because I'm busy all the time, but I'm busy doing what, right? What's my end goal of all this busyness? Or am I just busy for the sake of busyness, right? And that's a tough thing to sort of separate out what was my goal in all of this at the beginning? Why am I still doing all of this stuff? So for me, that's sort of I'm trying to sift through how I spend my time and doing what to find what sort of the nugget is of what it is I wanted and and using technology in a way that actually helps me instead of distracting me all the time. So that's, it's a lot. Definitely no shortage of opportunity yeah. to practice. Yes. <laughs> so let's thank you so much again for being My so pleasure. generous with your time. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu podcast.